0: Welcome to episode 103 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up?
1: Okay, I like the idea of referring to episodes only by number and not by topic, because it makes it sound a little bit like the poems of Emily Dickinson. That's not really a segue, but that's a tease for later in the podcast.
0: There you go. It's been a, a crazy... This this week has been another crazy year, hasn't it? Trump impeached a second time.
1: They all are. <sighs> all are. It's all exhausting. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what to say, but as of next week, when we record, we'll have a different president and the world will be without chaos, clearly, because I'm delusional and vaguely insane. Good times.
0: I I will say Twitter is a little bit better of a place, at least from from my vantage point.
1: Ah, I think that's an illusion.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I think I think it's an illusion
1: because there's always there's always whatever's happening in the corners somewhere. They're all the dark corners.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, enough about that. Let's dive into headlines. What do you say? Bring it on. Leading off, FX is ending its relationship with true detective creator Nick Pizzolatto after his script for Redeemer was passed over following star Matthew McConaughey's decision to leave the project because of tonal issues, per sources.
1: Huh. Well, that seems like a pretty big ticket thing for FX, but fortunately they have others because this week the John Landgraf-led cable network announced that they were teaming with Danny Boyle for a Sex Pistols limited series series. And developing another limited series, The Sparrow, from Scott Frank, best known as most recently the creator of Netflix's Queen's Gambit.
0: On the renewal front, it's been a hell of a week. HBO's Insecure will end with its previously announced fifth season. TNT's Animal Kingdom will wrap its run next year after six seasons. And Tyler Perry's The Haves and the Have-Nots, owns longest-running original, will wrap this year after eight seasons. And in other own news, Queen Sugar has been picked up for its sixth season. And over at HBO Max, they're moving forward with its Julia Child drama.
1: That's a lot of news. In casting news, Rami co-star Mae Kalamwe uh, has been tapped to star opposite Oscar Isaac in Marvel's Moon Knight for Disney+. Season three of HBO's Succession has added Sanaa Lathan, K-pop star Jin Hai, and Tony nominee Linda Edmond at Disney+. Former Andy Mack star Peyton Elizabeth Lee will star in the Doogie Hauser reboot that we all desperately needed. Uh, wrapping up, Tony Goldwyn and Daniel Day Kim will star in season two of National Geographic's anthology Hot Zone. And Daniel Day Kim was on Twitter noting that in his career, this was the first time he was actually top of the call sheet, which is vaguely remarkable. But congratulations. Surely he has earned it.
0: Yes, and that, that's just on a personal level. Goldwyn and, and Daniel J. Kim are two of the nicest leading men in, in town, at least the ones that I've had the pleasure of, of uh, interviewing and speaking with over the years. So looking forward to that one and rounding up headlines on the unscripted front. Rebel Wilson will host a dog grooming competition series for ABC called, and I can't make this up, Pooch Perfect.
1: Woof. I see what they did there.
0: Yeah, it's actually based on an Australian format that she also hosted. So if you feel like going down a very odd rabbit hole or a a dog hole, I don't know. The puns are terrible right now. You can go check out some clips of that over on YouTube.
1: With headlines out of the way, let's get to this week's topics. Number one. Leading off. Oh, it's time for another pilot season at the Broadcast Networks. And as we all know, everything went a little bit pear-shaped with pilot season last year. And so this year, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox and the CW are facing a wave of new factors as they plot out what the 2021-2022 broadcast season will look like. Fortunately, this podcast already happens to have on hand the leading expert on all things pilot season. And therefore, I'm just going to kick things over to my friend, my colleague, Leslie Goldberg.
0: Yeah, dude. Pilots, first of all, thank you for the kind words. You're (laughs) a gentleman and a scholar. And by the way, I adore you.
1: That is what my high school uh, Latin teacher, Linda Chester, said. She referred to me as a gentleman and a scholar. And I've been lying about that ever since. (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, you mentioned how pear-shaped last pilot season went, and that's kind of an understatement. I think there was maybe one pilot that was able to finish production last season out of, I think it was like 60 or 70 pilots that the broadcast networks picked up before production went to hell amid the pandemic. This year, you've got just... It's just topsy turvy on it in every front. You know, the first piece is obviously we are amid a really awful surge in Los Angeles. There was an LA Times report this morning that said one in three residents in in Los Angeles has had or has had or currently has COVID. Um, so yeah, you're looking at at when you're going to resume production. We've had some re- uh, new and returning shows uh, resume production this week here, but. You're looking right now you have a handful of pilots from last season that were picked up that the network's extended some cast options for let other other cast members go but basically said these scripts are still in contention we haven't filmed them yet we still believe in them they extended options on the writers they rolled development to this year So you have a crop of those of those projects that are still alive and they're all competing with the scripts that the networks have bought in the past year. So a lot of high profile stuff like uh, ABC is working on the primetime soap. You've got a new Powerpuff Girls live action show at the CW, Night Court at NBC. There's just so much new development. So all of those scripts, plus the pilots that were rolled for last year and even some of the scripts that were rolled for last year are all competing for, for a slot to get picked up to pilot. Then. You know, the other piece of it, too, is thematically, can some of these shows that were greenlit last year still either a get made like, you know, last year, the CW had a pilot that was set on a college campus. That's back to the development stage. It's called Maverick. It's still in development. It would still need a formal pilot order to move forward this year. But can a show like that actually logistically be made during a pandemic when these when writers and producers are telling people. Don't write crowd scenes. And then it's like, you know, thematically, like, are you still going to make dystopian shows? You know, you know, everything that we've heard from a lot of different people who are guests on our show, when we always ask our showrunners what they're watching and enjoying, Um, our our colleague Lacey Rose had a great roundup of showrunners talking about the shows that got them through last year. A lot of the stuff that's on that list are things that are hopeful. So I think that's going to be a pivot and something to pay attention to in terms of what gets picked up. And then you still have actual shows that were picked up over the past year or so. Things like NBC's The Keenan Show, which is, Jesus, the thing has been in the works for like four years now. Law and Order Organized Crime with Chris Maloney. Rebel at ABC. Fox has an animated comedy called House The CW has Republic of Sarah and Kung Fu. There's a lot of shows that have, that were picked up that there's no room on the schedule for, especially when you look at all these shows that NBC has in success, they're going to have the Summer Olympics. So it becomes a question of, are these shows that were picked up out of last year's pilot season going to air as part of the current broadcast season, the 2020-2021 season, or are they going to be pushed to 21-22? So you've seen some networks like Fox come out and say, we're going to pick up this show, but we're not going to air it this season. We're going to put it Next year, so that's a drama called This Country from Paul Feig, and then this week NBC got into the fray and said we're ordering three new series: drama La Brea, which is a sci-fi show set in LA. Uh, if you live in LA, you know the street La Brea, um, and comedies Grand Crew and American Auto. Except NBC said the same as Fox and said we're not even going to try and figure out where to air these this year. These are for next season. So this is development that originally started this time last year with casts that were extended, and in some cases there's new casts involved on some of the other, these other projects, earmarked for a year from now. So it's it's a giant clusterfuck, to, to put it mildly. And
1: it's not surprising, all things considered, that it would be that, given that everything else is, so that seems entirely fair. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about for week after week and month after month has been executive changes and how those have resulted in streamlining between networks and studios and all of that. Has that played and any streamers, role yeah. yet in in this pilot season and how basically where people are getting these pilots from and how the pipeline is operating?
0: Well, we don't know a whole lot about that yet. And you're talking specifically about NBC, which is now part of a content portfolio overseen by Susan Rovner, who we've mentioned also oversees Streamer Peacock, as well as all of the cable networks at NBC Universal. So they are the the only broadcast network that no longer has its own strictly dedicated executive ABC, of course, has Craig Erwick, who oversaw, who continues to oversee Hulu and now oversees ABC as well. That's make that alignment makes a lot more sense because you're going to see a lot of the ABC shows that already wind up having a second window or next day episodes on Hulu. So he's overseeing both. So hopefully he'll be able to kind of look and see, oh, this show is really, really strong on digital. And here's the consumption. And I know all about this because I work for Hulu and I can see how broadcast works and fits into their portfolio. So, how in terms of how those new exec arrivals are impacting what we've seen so far? Well, Rovner, the first move that she made in her new role at NBCU was to pick up Labrea, Grand Crew, and American Auto, and these were all pilots that had been front, front runners for the past year. The casts all stayed in place. They're from you know Dan, uh, Dan the creators of Superstore and Brooklyn Nine Nine. So you've got. Producers that are important, not just to the network, but to the larger studio as well, to, to universal television. Um, but a, and as for ABC, well, Craig has been there less time than Rovner has. So he hasn't done a whole lot at ABC. We talked in headlines about Pooch Perfect. That was an unscripted show that was developed under Carrie Burke and one of the things that she bought before being promoted to run 20th television. So, yeah, we're really it's going to be a wait and see approach to see how if how or if these new executives do anything differently. But as for Rovner, it's right now it looks like business as usual, continuing on with things that the network was all that was already shaping up to move forward. So it's, it's a wait and see what we've started to see new pilot orders come in. Uh, ABC picked up a crime procedural from Mr. Robot creator, Sam Ismail. That's a brand new pilot order for this season. If they pick it up to series, it would be for twenty one twenty two, and it's his first effort at broadcast. So, it's, you know, we're going to have a big pilot grid that I'll post in the next couple of days on THR.com that I update from the minute that every pilot gets picked up through casting through series orders and typically in May. But um, and speaking of series orders, you know, I interviewed Mark Petowitz um, from the CW this week. And one of the things that he noted that is super different is they're going to continue to make more straight to series orders. This is a younger skewing network that has traditionally avoided doing that. He firmly believes in the pilot development process because, as he always like, you know, as many execs like to say, you discover things when you make a pilot. It allows these these shows the time to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Straight to series, it's a bigger risk, but straight to series is also a little bit easier financially. It. it, you know, you're able to rather than spending millions and millions of dollars on these pilots, many of which don't even get made to series, you're being much more economical in terms of your budgeting. So I- I'm sure you'll see more straight to series pickups, not just at CW, but across the broadcast networks, be it from development that has been in the works for, for the past year or some other high profile shows. ABC went straight to series a few months ago on on a comedy from Modern Family uh, co-creator Chris Lloyd starring Alec Baldwin and... and um, And Kelsey Grammer, that's obviously, you know, you know know what you're going to get with those auspices attached. So what I'm interested to see this year is how much of the pilots that move to series will be from last year's development class versus completely new.
1: Well, stay tuned because we will surely be talking about this plenty in the weeks to come. I feel like there were probably in the spring, like eight weeks in a row that we were going to do. Let's do an update on pilot season as a topic. But then there kept being, you know, other horrible things that we had to do as topics instead. And the update on pilot season kept being, well, it's not going anywhere because of COVID. So we're going to have to see how this spring plays out.
0: Yeah, I mean, stories that I, that I normally would have done this time a year ago or, or in March never happened. You know, we were in the middle. You know, when, when production was shut down, we had seen a lot of casting already begun on I'd say more than half of the pilots were were cast by then. And we're in the middle of doing interviews with casting directors, which is a story I love doing every year. And a lot of those were canceled. I I think I had done two out of, I think, six or eight that I had scheduled. And a lot of them were were already saying, yeah, we're not doing crowd scenes. We're trying to avoid anything with extras. You know, we don't want to be on location as much, you know, and then, of course, everything changed. But um, yeah, it'll be curious. I will be very curious to see how things shake out this year.
1: Stay tuned. Number two. So up second, and just like that, they're back. HBO Max announced this week that it was officially bringing back Sex and the City with a new take. It will be called, and I just teased it or spoiled it, and just like that, it will feature Sarah Jessica Parker, Kristen Davis, and Cynthia Nixon reprising their roles from. Sex and the City, as well as Michael Patrick King, who won an Emmy for directing on the series and oversaw the two feature film spinoffs, which received mixed notice.
0: (laughs) You're so polite. Uh,
1: You know, look, you've got to know when things are for you and things are not for you. Uh, This is not a project for me, and that is entirely okay. I have no desire to insult it because some things should not be for me. That's the way life should work. And with that in mind, break down the business of this particular deal and particularly why it's on HBO Max and not the HBO mothership, as it were.
0: Well, you know, it, it's interesting if your Twitter feed is not anything like mine, it was a, a a lot of people saying, why? Why is this even happening? Who, who asked for this? And the answer to that is you have a new streaming platform that is encouraging subscribers current HBO subscribers to convert their subscription from the premium cable network to the streaming platform. It costs the same money. A lot of subscribers haven't figured out how to do that yet. I heard that that changed a, a little bit with Wonder, Wonder Woman 1984. But yeah, this is a, a platform that is looking for subscribers, whether it's new customers that already have HBO or people that don't and they and want the bigger value that comes with what HBO Max offers. And Look, you know, in, in the past couple, you know, the past few years, Sex in the City ha- has been available on, in syndication on a, on a bunch of different networks, I think most recently on E! And it's found a new audience the same way that a show like Friends and, and even The Office found new audiences because they were streaming on Netflix. And in a way to bring in that new audience, as well as fans of the original, you're going to put it on HBO Max. So it's basically... As I wrote in my analysis this week, it's basically if you liked and loved The Mandalorian, this is the same version of that, right? I'm not saying that this is like, you know, in terms of quality, but it's the same business model. Sex and the City, the entire run is available to stream on HBO Max, and they're going to bring back this, the, the, the three of the four original stars because this is a big property for them. It's a broad hit that in the last couple of years has reached new audiences who discover the show in syndication, and it also is going to bring in fans of the original. You know, it, it obviously is going to revolve around the trio exploring life and friendship in their 50s. Listen, I'm, I'll be 47 this year. You know, this... I didn't watch the original, but I'm very curious to see how women in their 50s, what, th- what that friendship looks like, because friendships change as you get older. And it, it's I'm interested in that just based on the concept itself. But, you know, the, the bigger pieces, too, is, you know, we, there have been a, you know, some people have saying, well, it's basically like a prequel to The Golden Girls. And I'm just like, yeah, maybe, but, you know, same thing. Right. You know, a comedy exploring the life of older women and the friend and their friendships it's the same show, right? This is just has a, you know, this has built in IP and that's what HBO Max is looking for to, to lure new subscribers to its service. So the same way that you're going to doing offshoots of all your DC comic shows or reboots, like I think, you know, Greg Berlanti is doing a big budget Green Lantern for HBO Max. J.J. Abrams is doing Justice League Dark for HBO Max. We keep saying on this show, every all roads point to streaming and that's what's happening here. So HBO sees their job as to find the next version of sex in the city shows like insecure girls more recently i may destroy you did that did just that and now you're seeing hbo max has is trying to build a bigger platform besides that all of the shows that that premiere on hbo all wind up on hbo max anyway so this is an effort to bring in a big and broad audience
1: and yet It's IP, but not using the IP's name, which seems perplexing to me. I understand that the name has meaning for Sex and the City fans, but still in all, it is not Sex and the City colon... The golden years or whatever you want to put it, you know, there, there were ways in which. Yeah. It's not sex in the city season seven. Exactly. And, and so that sort of makes me wonder what the value of the IP is. Also, you mentioned the new audience the show has found in different places. I'm, I'm so disappointed you didn't mention the new audience it found on TBS, uh, in, in comically ridiculously censored syndication. So because I vividly remember when that was something that HBO thought was going to be the future of television was selling edited versions of The Sopranos to basic cable and edited versions of Sex and the City to TBS. So yeah, that all worked out great. I'm sure actually that there are people out there who discovered the show on TBS and God bless them. Um, Yeah, the the thing that everyone on my Twitter feed has been talking about is the absence of Kim Cattrall and that is not a thing that I find perfectly particularly tragic because, again, simply not a show for me. And that's OK. I've watched enough to know that. But definitely there are people who are like, what's even the point of doing this show without Kim Cattrall? And I think that's going to be a thing that they are going to have to combat immediately and aggressively. And I don't know what the answer is going to be. But there is going to be a, you know, you want there to be a built in equity, you want there to be a built in enthusiasm. Instead, there's a built in cautiousness of people going like, okay, well, you know, they're missing the person who I thought was the funniest part of the darn show. What is the show going to be without her? And I guess we're gonna have to see what the answer to that is.
0: I mean, look, it's a show about about how friendships evolve and, and with women in their 50s. And as someone, you know, look, the people that I was friends with in, in my 30s are not in my life anymore, sadly, but it's, people change. And I, I would I know there's already I heard Vegas casinos are already placing odds on how they'll, they will handle the absence of Samantha. But it wouldn't surprise me. And I, I don't know anything about about what the, the decision is and how they'll handle it creatively. But my money would go on. They just drifted apart. That's what happens. That's that's how life works. So who knows? But uh, it's definitely an interesting swing on on their part. And it brings in a new demo to the streaming service, you know, which is heavily reliant on on DC Comics Fair, just like Disney is reliant on Marvel. So you want to hit every demo. You want to hit kids and family. You want to hit women. You want to hit the older audiences. You know, just like Netflix has shown, they want to be they want to have something for everyone. So
1: Stay tuned. And presumably they know over at HBO Max how many people watched the Steven Soderbergh movie that they premiered a couple weeks ago with uh, Meryl Streep, Candace Bergen and Diane Weist, which basically was sort of the 70 something version of Sex and the City. Uh, So they know what the audience is that they're getting and they know what the value of this is going to be for them. And I assume it will have value. And our colleague Ingu Kang is already looking forward to reviewing it. And I am looking forward to letting her review it. Number
0: three. Well, up third this week. We talked about this briefly in headlines last week, but now it's official. Roku has acquired more than 75 programs from Quibi's original catalog. Titles like The Stranger and Most Dangerous Games, as well as more than a dozen that were filmed but never released before the short form series imploded, were all included in the deal Roku will distribute them for free and without ads on the Roku channel in the U.S., U.K., and Canada. Sources say the deal value the content library at less than 100 million. And you know, Dan, when you think about it in terms of of deals that we've seen in in you know recent years, to me, it, it feels like the equivalent of a cable operator like Spectrum or Direc- or Directv getting into the originals business.
1: You say quibye, I, I say quiblo. Or something. You know, I don't. You know,
0: we thought we expired all the Quibi jokes last year. We but really did. Just, but it continues to be the gift that keeps on giving, doesn't it's it? It's
1: not much of a gift. Uh, it's, you know, if you look at the value of this and you look at what the value that Jeffrey Katzenberg and company were talking about that they had invested in the company to begin with, the idea of selling all of the assets for less than $100 million is, it's just sad. <laughs> there's there's nothing else to it. I mean, You know, amortizing the money is is good. And my understanding is that there is a chance that some of these could still have contract options that could allow them to make more episodes. That that seemed to be what some people were saying. And I guess that would be good because, again, it would keep people employed. Uh, The part of this that I find most interesting is that they won't be able to bring over the orientation technology That was one of the big selling points for, for Quibi is the idea that you could watch it in horizontal or video and that one or two of the people involved in making these things might actually put some effort into giving a different experience in horizontal and vertical. Uh, from what I watched, I would say that of the 30 ish Quibi shows that I watched, probably two of them, it made a difference if you watched in horizontal versus vertical. The other ones, it was just cropped funny. Um, but there actually were people who tried putting some effort into making different experiences and bless them. It was, you know, it was an idea. It was it was a way of saying, look, if if the kids today think the technology is supposed to be watched in a vertical format, maybe there's a way that we can tell stories that way, even though storytelling on films and TV screens have been largely horizontal for decades. So, yeah, I, it, I find it interesting that that piece of the technology apparently has been lost, and I would be interested in hearing what the negotiations have been on how they're going to be deciding how the cuts are going to make it to TV, or if it's just going to be as simple as here, it's the horizontal cut, deal with it.
0: Yeah. And from an original point of view, you know, think of it this way. This is presumably hours and hours and hours of, of content that they're acquiring at at a somewhat decent value. And when you think about it, so that that's a lot of hours of programming and a lot of content for less than what, maybe a year of What Netflix is paying someone like Shonda Rhimes or Ryan Murphy to make originals, so that's a lot of content. And you know, meanwhile, I keep hearing from a couple different sources that Roku is looking to expand from just being a home to this Quibi library content into making originals on its own. So think of it that way, you know, where you had have a show like Ellie's Finest launching, you know, that was available to to Spectrum subscribers. It's the same idea, you know, except without cable, a cable subscription, right? This is, you know, you have a Roku subscription, you get the, uh, you know, the three-year-old Roku channel, which already reaches 62 million people. It's a top 10 channel on its platform in terms of streaming hours and and total active accounts. I mean, it's literally programming that's right there at your fingertips and easy to use if you're a Roku subscriber. So, and that's why it was such a big deal when you saw HBO Max finally coming to Roku.
1: That was exactly what I was about to mention is, is I think that we all learned or were reminded of just how prevalent Roku is in the marketplace by the unrest about HBO Max not being available on that platform. I think I think that was a very, very telling moment, probably for everybody that there are enough people who are devoted users of their Roku that they weren't going to change something just to get whatever the pleasures or conveniences of HBO Max are. And, you know, for me personally, I used a Roku for many years, but ultimately there were a number of important screener sites that simply didn't have Roku apps. And so I made a transition over to an Apple TV and I'm happy with it and that's fine, but I liked my Roku. It just became more convenient for my purposes to have a different thing. I think that a lot of people made it very clear to the marketplace that they are dedicated enough to their Roku to get pissed off at HBO Max. And I think that this is sort of an evidence of, you know, okay, so we've got these this audience. They are a dedicated audience. They're an audience that has money just like everyone else. Let's find a way to actually give them original programming. to, To me, it feels like this is something that is probably several years behind the curve. And it feels more to me like, you know, Facebook getting into the original programming business or YouTube getting into the original programming business. A lot of those things that have been less successful in that business in recent years, but could easily be wrong. And wouldn't it be funny if the acquisition of the Quibi library ended up contributing directly to Roku becoming a gigantic player in the original space? You know, if, if somehow Quibi's legacy was as a facilitator of Roku dominance. That would be that would be a story. It it would be it would be an interesting story. And somewhere Jeffrey Katzenberg would be either laughing or crying one or the other.
0: Yeah, shaking his fist in one way or another. Yeah. But yeah, we use Roku TV. Um, We just uh, subscribe to it. Uh, the beginning of the year after we moved and it's so easy to use, you know, the, the interface is, is so terrific. And, we're, and the first day that HBO Max was available, the first thing I did was set it all up and we've been watching Friends every night. You know, it's just it's so simple and doing originals, not just with the Quibi library, but even if they were to create their own content, it's another selling point for a service that has already proved to be something that a lot of subscribers need. A lot of TV viewers need and use. And feel very strongly about. So, yeah, just to, to reiterate your point.
1: It's yeah. true. But of course, as I just used those two examples, YouTube and Facebook Watch both had a tremendous amount of marketplace name brand equity, and it did not help either service succeed as a.
0: Right. But you're not turning on the TV and and seeing F- Facebook as your home screen to decide what you're going to watch and what you're going to do. It's not the primary function. Right. Same with YouTube. Right. Like when we turn on the TV, the Roku home screen is there and it's a choice of what do we want to watch? Do we want to watch this app or this app or this app or, you know, and so on. But YouTube and Facebook didn't have that.
1: And probably that was a, a miss on their part. No, this will be a thing to follow. And and I guess it's a semi happy ending for Quibi, but not particularly. Yes. Really. If
0: you're a Quibi creator, at least you're happy that, that your content will see the light of the day and continue to have an opportunity to be found. Indeed. So. Next up, it's time for our Showrunner Spotlight segment.
1: Number four.
0: Joining us this week is Alina Smith, creator of Apple TV's Dickinson. Before the quirky semi-comic retelling of poet Emily Dickinson's life, Smith worked on shows including The Newsroom and The Affair. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I want to start because I'm someone who only recently started watching Dickinson, but As someone who's new to the show, can you take me back to the genesis for the idea? Like, where did the idea to explore Emily Dickinson's formative years and do so as a comedy featuring modern music and modern modern language come from?
2: Um, Well, let's see. I um, I always was a fan of Emily Dickinson, and then I I think I got really um, interested in her actually in my early twenties, reading a biography of hers. So my way into to Emily really was actually through her life story, as opposed to through her work. Although I quickly became obsessed with her work as well, Um, and and I think the things that most fascinated me about her. Um, were the kind of paradoxes embedded in her story. So the fact that she, you know, wrote nearly 2,000 poems, some of the greatest poems ever written in the English language, and yet almost none of them were published while she lived. Um, And also her ability to fit the most infinite, enormous subjects into these very small contained lines of verse. You know, she sat at a very small little desk and wrote on small pieces of paper in her childhood bedroom that she stayed in all the way into her 50s when she died. Um, And there, to me, these things about her were paradoxical and compelling and also kind of funny. Um, You know, the fact that Emily's life on the outside really was pretty mundane and boring, and most of her um, days were the same, while on the inside, her imagination was just so wild and sprawling and uh, going into all these sort of radical nooks and crannies. So I think all of that is what led me to think that I wanted to make an experimental, surrealist, gothic, half-hour show about Emily Dickinson.
0: You know, the show won a a Peabody Award last season, a pretty prestigious award. But I wonder, you know, how much did that help inspire confidence as you crafted season two? And obviously you got the early season two renewal before you even before Apple TV Plus even launched.
2: Yeah, we (laughs) all of season two was written before season one aired. And we went into production on season two before season one aired and the Peabody Award, I believe, because <laughs> sorry, it's been a crazy year. So I'm trying to remember. but <laughs> you know, pretty sure We found out about it this spring and I was into the writing of season three. So the timeline of this has been has been pretty bizarre, um, in in part because we were launching a platform that was apple tv plus and um in part because of covid sort of delaying the release of season two although fortunately for us not the production of season two because that was all in the can before the pandemic started um but yeah so so i've i've really like pursued this thing um in a funny way a lot like Emily Dickinson, kind of in a room by myself. Um, and now it's coming out in the world, and and it's exciting to get to see the responses.
1: Well, as you say, Emily Dickinson wrote around 2000 poems. Uh, have you had a method in the past three years for how you've read and reread those poems as preparation for individual episodes, for seasons, etc.?
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing that's incredible is that I mean, I've really been immersed in this research about Emily Dickinson for um, going on 10 years now. And there are still poems of hers that I've never read. And um, I actually just the other day, read a, a new poem I had never come across where Emily describes the experience of having deja vu. And she doesn't call it deja vu. But that's very clearly what the poem is about. And like, amazing, weird, never heard of it, never saw it. You know, she just... She wrote so much that there's always more there to discover. Um, But along the way, as I have developed this project and, and built this world, I'm always reading and rereading her work and also the work of scholars about her. And I'll keep notes of like great lines. Helpfully, you know, her poems don't have titles. They're all just known by their first lines. And she wrote these great first lines that are all these sort of hooks because I could not stop for death. Like... They they make you really lean forward. And and there's a lot of drama packed into her poems. And in the collected poems of Emily Dickinson, there will be an index that has the first lines. And I've certainly poured over that index and and had my, you know, notebook out and written down like, oh, a spider sewed at night that's cool, that's spooky. Can we do something with that? Is there an episode with a giant spider? No, not yet. But um, (laughs) we did have a giant bee, uh, but not yet a giant spider. But um, so so I'm always keeping notes of like fragments that excite me, um, that we can kind of then um, have this grab bag to dig in and, and use as we're making more seasons.
1: So the season one premiere begins with a disclaimer that basically says, to paraphrase, if you thought we were taking liberties before, wait till you get a load of what's to come. The season two um, disclaimer,
0: I should just Yeah, season two. Read it
1: Why was that something you felt like you wanted or needed to include this season?
0: Well, so
2: it's funny because I, I, I've realized only now in retrospect that that is um, it's a little bit misleading because the truth is that factually speaking, season two is just as grounded in fact as season one. But my reason why I wanted to start season two with that quote unquote disclaimer is it's more of a sort of provocation to get people to think about the use of surrealism in the form of the show. So I would say that we push the boundaries further in season two in terms of this kind of seamlessness between Emily's lived outer experience and Emily's lived internal experience. And I'm hoping to bring people into almost a, a narrative space where those two things become so interwoven that it's impossible to extricate them from each other. And so I'm suggesting that for a poet like Emily with such a wild mind, um, and yet such a contained exterior life, it may be that the best access to the truth of her experience, the felt lived emotional truth is through creative work and fantasy as opposed to, um, you know, facts.
1: Well, okay, along those lines, when you uh, (laughs) when you're pitching a second season of a show that hasn't premiered yet, how do you make that pitch you just made for season two? Cause that seems like the kind of thing that for an executive would be an ambitious thing to buy in on, on a show that had no track record.
2: <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, my, I remember, I mean, my pitch for season two to Apple was literally an hour long. And I mean, I just, I just sat there and read off of it. Like I, I had all 10 episodes yeah, I mean so there was I would agree there was a lot of proof of concept required um because even though we had finished making all of season 1 so it was it was there to see but um and the aesthetic of the show had been established successfully through you know our wonderful production team and our cast obviously um but in in terms of like how do you keep telling stories about Emily Dickinson You know, I told them what season two was going to be.
0: The disclaimer does note that, you know, there is, you know, an actual historical record consists of very few letters. But what actual history did you have to actually go on for season two? Like, what did you have to start with?
2: Um, Okay, so the primary um, sort of biographical source material for season two is about this man named Sam Bowles, who comes into the life of Emily, Austin and Sue. And um, this is a real guy, Samuel Bowles, who was the editor in chief of the Springfield Republican, which was one of the most important newspapers of um, the Dickinson's world. And he was a young, progressive workaholic up and coming editor in chief of this newspaper that he really was hoping would sort of disrupt the media. He, um, he was, he was a gadfly. He was, he was a man about town. He knew everyone. He, he was extremely extroverted and charismatic. Um, and he was very progressive and, and, Um, specifically about women publishing. He really wanted to encourage young female voices to get out there and be seen and heard in the public eye. And, um, you know, he was a frequent guest at Sue and Austin's elaborate, sophisticated literary salons. um, And he also was a correspondent not only of Sue, but of Emily. And also his wife was a correspondent of Emily as well. And his wife was um, very different from him. She was quite shy, often ill, and um, at home with their children. So there were definitely rumors that swirled around Sam and his affairs, at least affairs of the mind, with many brilliant women, um, including including, you know, Emily herself. Um, so, so that was a sort of juicy scrap of history that I spun into a season of, of television about, about these characters.
1: (laughs) But I mean, it's, you, you sort of talk about the reputation there and the way that you put it at least in the first place, as the historical record goes, Sam Bowles has this progressive reputation and he's a champion of female authors. And you go through the second season, and I would say it is less generous to him than perhaps that makes it sound. Did you know that you were going to want to look askance, I guess, at at what his motivations might or might not have been in championing female writers?
2: Well, I'm not I'm not sure that we Do look askance at them because ultimately, yeah. I mean, I don't I wanna I wanna be careful because it's there's a lot of spoilers and it's certainly we're certainly trying to have a a mystery, right? But I think that what's really important is is that in in season one of Dickinson, we kind of suggest that, okay, the big mystery of Emily's life is why didn't she publish? And we present perhaps a plausible explanation, which is that her father was pretty conservative. He didn't approve of women publishing. And so she strikes this kind of Faustian bargain with him where she will stay in her room and write and not show anyone her poems. And and he will let her do that right? Um, But even in season one, when we have Louisa May Alcott come to visit for Christmas dinner, she, she starts to sort of open the curtain a little bit on this idea that Emily has that women are never allowed to publish. And she says, actually, that's not true. Women are publishing all the time. There's, there's hordes of women publishing in the 19th century. They're actually getting made fun of by male writers. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and, and all you have to do to get out there and be one of them is just be a little bit less precious about the work, that you're making. Um, So that was kind of our first little peephole into the idea that perhaps it's Emily herself who's resistant to publishing. Um, and perhaps there are more um, complicated answers to the question of why didn't she publish, right? So in season two, we find ourselves in this, what feels like a new moment of a kind of accelerated pace of technology and media. Um, and really the option and opportunity to become famous, to become known, to step into the spotlight is at Emily's door. It's at her finger. Tips like all she has to do is just give her poems to this guy, Sam. And, um, and that is based in, in truth as well. You know, Emily, it's really, it's always really important to remember that Emily Dickinson lived in this like completely literary context. She knew editors and writers, and it was, it was new England in the, in the 19th century. It's the land of Melville and Hawthorne and Alcott and all the, you know, um, nothing would have been easier for her than to publish. And so then the question is, well, why didn't she? Right. And um, I think in season two, what we are exploring is perhaps that some of Emily's reasons not to publish had to do with her own ambivalence about fame, visibility, being seen, and um, what that meant for her own connection to her inner voice. So So Sam comes in wanting to shine a light on Emily. And I think that you can say that that is good or bad. It's sort of, it's, it's ambiguous, right? Like um, there's, there's a bit of a, fame is always a, a bit of a monster for an artist, I think is one of the things that we're saying.
0: I want to detour this, this conversation because we were talking before we started recording about the music on the show. Whoever your music supervisor is, has like a window to my soul. The music is so extremely great. You know, that, you know, can you talk a little bit about what goes into the decision to, to first feature modern music and then second, how it fits in during the writing process? I mean, some of these songs are so perfect for the, for the specific scene and the theme that you're exploring in, in that moment. Like, do you ever write in like, oh, this song right into the script? And I mean, a lot of these are, are songs and artists that I've, I've never even heard of and it's, they're, they're perfect. So
2: um, having contemporary music was always
0: um, part of the plan and the design
2: of Dickinson. You know, even in the pilot script, I think I had like a Kendrick Lamar song playing in the first moment when Emily is walking through the woods or whatever. Um, but then I was so blessed to have DeVoe Yates come on as our music supervisor. I knew DeVoe's work because he did the music for Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals. And he. I knew that he was going to bring the kind of like swagger that I wanted to Emily as well as just like the heart uh, um and having his his like you know finger on the pulse of of like just this musical moment. Um, and of course, we've also been so lucky because we have Hayley playing Emily, who, you know, is a, a pop star in her own right. And of course, Wiz Khalifa playing Death and um, getting to make the show for Apple and Apple Music being such an important part of their brand. Like a lot of things came together, as well as our incredible composers, um, Ian and Sophia Holtquist. Um, so, we have a really cohesive and coherent, like, musical team in place. And DeVoe is a genius. He, he is just so in sync with what the show wants to be. And um, he's the one with the encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, he's like got Spotify as a brain or, or something, or Apple Music, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and probably um, and, uh, more than those things, too. But um, so, you know, in terms of, of like specific songs in the scripts what what I would say is like when we're writing the scripts we're always carving out room for songs um and then I work with Devo to figure out exactly the perfect song and sometimes if it's like a dance sequence which we've had in in both both seasons um we will have that song playing on set when we're filming. And so then the song does get chosen, even even in production. We know what the song is. We have a choreographer. We're, we're all working together. And that's like the most fun day on set because we're literally having a dance party. And uh, it's just, it's so awesome. But yeah, everybody who works on Dickinson, especially in post, like we end up all having you know, playlists that we're all obsessed with. And I I genuinely think the music in season two even surpasses season one. Like it, it, there's so many good songs.
0: I I just downloaded the season two playlist and it's just, it's fantastic. So good.
2: I guess the only other thing I would say about, you know, why is there contemporary music in the show? You know, it's music really functions as like our number one tool to sort of inject a contemporary consciousness that is the consciousness of emily our character bursting out of the seams of her you know 19th century corset and like social restrictions right so i feel like the music of the show is is like emily's consciousness like pulsing through the show um and it's really foregrounded as a result because of that i mean it's so crucial to the character
1: so you mentioned that when you're going through poems, you, you're sort of writing down snippets and you're annotating and all of that. How When do you decide when you're going to associate poem X or Y with a specific episode? How often is the quote going to be the first thing you have at the top of the episode? How often do you change that, etc.?
2: So I feel like I work in a way kind of like a collage method where um, there's always these different pieces, but like, it it, dep- it sort of depends on the episode what piece comes first. So sometimes it is a line of a poem that I'm just so in love with this line and I think we have to make this an episode out of this. Um sometimes it's just an image. Sometimes it's a piece of 19th century history or culture. Like, you know, I knew that I wanted in season one to have an episode about Thoreau where Emily would go meet Thoreau thinking that he's going to be this like icon of the solitary writer. And then she finds out that his mom and his sister are doing his laundry and baking him cookies. Um, And so for that one, we were working backwards, like what's a good poem that this that this Thoreau episode could be called and we came up with Alone I Cannot Be, which I'm very helped in finding those because there is um, a searchable Dickinson archive online where you can put in any word and find all the poems that are, um, that have that word in it. So like, I'm sure we searched for Alone and we found it, you know? Um, So yeah, it totally depends. I mean, I, 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 you know, a lot of the time it's just like, I'm thinking of a a 19th century, um, sort of event or setting or milieu that I really want to explore like a circus or a seance. But again, these are coming also from my immersion in Emily's own biography, as well as like surrounding texts, both in terms of literary theory about Emily Dickinson, but also just 19th century and civil war history in, in general.
1: Now, it's only spoiling a little bit to say that there is some publication that takes place in the season, and there's an episode that I would describe as as thematically being basically don't read the comments. And I'm curious as to a how central that was in your mind as you were writing that particular episode, but also how well you and the other writers on the show have either avoided or curated the comments that you've read for the show.
2: Well, again, luckily, when we were writing season two, we were still months behind the release of season one. So we didn't have any comments to go to go on, which which was probably nice um, for us. But I would say that when we started our season two writers room, I sort of populated the room with a group of mostly 20 something writers who were all uh, hilarious Crazy and mostly like extremely online, and um, I knew that season two was very much going to be about fame and the dangers of fame and exposure in for Emily, but like in order to reflect on our own lives in this time of social media and everybody living their lives, um, you know, in this in this internet space, and I definitely sort of interrogated my young writers about like how they felt about their own online presences, building a brand, curating the self, the persona, all all these things that, you know, have become really day-to-day experiences of all of us who have an Instagram account, you know? And um, I, I think that, you know, they were all incredibly sort of smart and savvy and and ironic and yet still emotional and sincere about all the sort of um you know pitfalls and landmines embedded in in that kind of experience of like putting yourself out there. Um so those were conversations that we we had a lot.
1: Clear segue seems to be what social media platform would Emily Dickinson have the most followers on today.
2: <laughs> um Oh, Emily! God, would she be? Uh, I mean, you've got to say Twitter, right? Because I mean, Twitter, Twitter is Twitter is just the space for writers to lose their minds. Uh, so and, and reporters, yeah, been very short lines. So I feel like she could just get it out there. I mean, I follow I follow an Emily Dickinson account on Twitter that that's just like. Consistently great. I also follow a Moby Dick account that's consistently great. So there's there's some definite 19th century literature representation on on Twitter. Um, yeah.
0: um, I, I do want to talk about you know the the big picture for the show. Uh, you guys got an early renewal for season three ahead of the season two premiere. First of all, is a plan to do to film season three back to back with season two, you know, because of the, you know, the issues relating to, to the, the pandemic and how challenging it is to film, like, will you stay in production? Or was this because you really are just super far ahead on, on scripts when it comes to like, as you said, we wrapped production of season two a year ago. Oh, my goodness. And, Good. um, and we had our season three
2: writers room over zoom this summer. So this, this has been a, again, the strangest timeline, the strangest timeline Like I, I, I really, I really think we might've been the only show ever in television history to start production on season two with all of it written before season one even came out. Like it's just been very abnormal. And it's been kind of like making a series of independent films is what it's felt like. Um, But so You know, season three. I've been I've been writing it since last spring, and I'm almost done now. And we're going into production in in a few months.
0: And do you have like a a long term arc for how long this series runs? Knowing, of course, how Emily's life ended.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't. I I I have to say that for me, I was always aiming at the Civil War, and we do get to the Civil War in season three. Um, so, you know, we'll see. It's, it's been, it's been a much longer arc for me than it has for anyone else. (laughs) And I, 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 you know, contrary to what many people think, I'm actually not an Emily Dickinson scholar who only writes, wants to write period biopics about Emily Dickinson. I actually have a lot of ideas that like take place in the present or the future. (laughs) So, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see. So are you planning season three as a final season? I'm thinking that if it was the final season, I'd be able to sort of walk away proudly from from it. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> but it's still such an interesting piece of tone because the show is at times genuinely rollicking and fun. But you still begin. Basically, you begin the pilot, you begin the first episode with the Emily Dickinson um You know, she she spent the last 20 years of her life basically alone in a room as a recluse. So there's the sort of the this is going someplace that probably is fairly sad aspect of the story. How do you balance that with the this is also fun? And do you want to avoid going to the point where it's going to be the season that's all Emily in her room being unhappy?
2: (laughs) Well, I don't think she was unhappy. And that's one of the things that the show is pushing back against. You know, the this, this show wants to say in, in every possible way, um, Emily Dickinson was not a victim of circumstance. She was a totally badass artist who took every scrap of agency available to her and made this profound body of work. And, you know, um, it's also important to remember, like, her sister Lavinia never left home either. You know, Austin, her brother, went across the street and aside from that never left home you know so this was a very close family they they lived um in a in a time that's very different from ours emily took long walks with her dog and gardened and had a passionate decades-long relationship with Sue, her childhood friend who married her brother and who was the recipient of hundreds and hundreds of love letters and poems from Emily. So there's absolutely a reading of Emily's life, which is that she lived well into her old age and was perfectly content. Um, so I, I think that's just important to remember. Like it's, she, she, she was not, um, uh, she, she wasn't Sylvia Plath. She didn't kill herself, you know? Um, so, so, but, but there is a distinct difference between writing what I feel like I'm writing, which is the coming of age story of Emily Dickinson, as opposed to writing The later years of Emily Dickinson, which have been covered in two movies over the past five years, there was the Cynthia Nixon movie and the Molly Shannon movie. And, you know, I was already doing my project the whole time those movies were coming out. So I haven't actually seen them because I didn't want to get Con, you know, get in, interfere with my own conception of these characters and, and stuff like that. But, but you know, my understanding is that both of them take place in the later years, which makes sense because there's actually a really juicy drama that takes place in those later years, um, which is pretty cool. But again, like I'm, I'm sort of, I, I think what's one of the things that's fascinating to me is that Emily's most productive years as an artist were the four years of the Civil War. That was when her brain kind of just like exploded. It seems. And so that's really where I'm going in season three and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see, but I don't, I think that, you know, this is also in the, in the context of like a completely radically altered television landscape, content landscape, you know, I'm not sure, uh, that, yeah. I mean, not every show has to go on for like seven seasons, you know, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, there are certain decisions that you've made that, that really guide the the whole show that you've extrapolated. Like, as you mentioned, the Emily and Sue relationship being an epic romance, which just give me more of that story, please. But once you've you've made these inferences like that, do you give yourself free reign or are there rules that you have to make that keep within the parameters of history?
2: Yeah, I, I again, it's it's funny because I, I said this previously in an interview, but I think I think people have this impression that I feel like trapped by the facts or hindered by the facts when in fact I feel like completely turned on by the facts. And you can ask people in my writer's room, I will be like, no, you can't make up a name for that character. You have to go find out what the name was of the person who actually was, you know, the the dean of Amherst College or the eye doctor that Emily saw or whatever. Like I I only want facts, but what we are doing with those facts is remixing them in surprising ways. So it's funny, but like, it it really would be hard to point to anything in Dickinson that isn't in some way true. And the people who are the Dickinson scholars, um, who are my, for me, my favorite group of fans, are the Dickinson scholars because they're the ones who are as obsessed with her as I am. And they know the, the, the care and the levels of detail that went into this. And I mean, there's always interpretation available. So for example, Emily and Sue, I would say that my version of Emily Dickinson is she's sort of like a poly Emily. Like she, she has, she has her core love affair with Sue, but along the way, she also manages to have an affair with, with like, you know, some, some men straight and queer and also deaf. So like, she's kind of all over the place, (laughs) Um, but, um, but you know, there's certainly like leading Dickinson scholars who say, no, 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 Emily and Sue It was Emily and Sue always, they were married. They were, you know, like, so there's always room for interpretation. I mean, there's a great... Actually, so the Los Angeles Review of Books uh, just started along with season two. To my great joy, um, a group of, of Dickinson scholars have started publishing responses to the show. And one of them wrote that Whitman contains multitudes and Dickinson contains variants. You know, this has always been the truth of Dickinson is that people... Um, can come to the Dickinson world, the Dickinson Archive, and and create their own version of her. And, you know, that's all I've done here. I've created a, a version of Emily Dickinson um, sort of to, to suit the things that I want to look at in our world. But my version doesn't preclude others from emerging or even existing in, in parallel and simultaneously.
1: So, yeah. Well, you're sort of, as you say, you're creating a variation on who Emily Dickinson was or wasn't. But you know that you have 30 episodes or more in which the choices you make get to play out. Whereas when you have a character like Thoreau or Edgar Allan Poe pops up this season or even someone who's a little bit more um I would say, of a niche character in history, someone like Henry Box Brown, you maybe have only an episode with that person and you're kind of making the choice of here's the thing we want to say about this person while having fun with the idea of this person But it's not going to be a full biography. You know, it's it's going to be here's here's a little wink and nudge version of this person. How do you construct the versions of the well-known people who you populate in this world and decide how much of their truth you need to expose?
2: Well, so those kind of we actually call them are like celebrity cameos whenever those um, famous people of 19th century culture pop up in the show. And it's fun because they do exist kind of in this meta space slightly outside of the grounded reality of our characters and our world. Um, so, you know, um, we they are fully caricatures and they are send ups whereas our characters are not. So I think that they come into play because they have something, they speak to something that Emily is wrestling with in her sort of central journey of um, whatever she's going through in in the season or the series at that point. Um, So as I say, Louisa May Alcott came in to basically be like, hey, you know, you're acting like women can't publish, but you know, I'm out here trying to financially support myself by writing like trashy bodice rippers and just being a little bit commercial. So maybe like get off your high horse, Emily Dickinson, you know, stop writing poetry, uh, like, you know, um, and, uh, Thoreau was all about, you know, Emily's desire to, to, you know, Prove that she could exist in solitude without anybody seeing her work or, or whatever. But those are season one examples, and and within season two, where we are talking about fame, I mean, with Edgar Allan Poe, he really was um, kind of like a, a a fame addict who seems to have like chased the dragon in more ways than one, and um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 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 so anyway, yeah. That I, I don't know. I mean, I think I think the thing is that one of the reasons why these kind of cameos and caricatures can happen is because again, what I'm doing with my show, it really has much less to do with the real person, Emily Dickinson. It has much more to do with exploring the cultural avatar of Emily Dickinson and what she means to us today. And so what does it mean? What is a high school English curriculum? why are people reading Walden and why are people, um, you know, looking at Edgar Allan Poe? What, what, what do these writers have to say to us today? And, you know, What does the time in American history leading up to the Civil War and including the Civil War have to say to us today? Unfortunately, a lot (laughs) is the answer. And, um, you know, this really was kind of the birth of American literature. And Emily Dickinson was part of it, even though she wasn't like out there in the same way, but she was like down the street from these people. So it's a very fertile, evocative time in our history that, um, that I feel like we are carrying with us, because that's kind of one of the things the show is trying to say is that like the past is the present. The past is still with us.
1: Well, along those lines, I'm always interested in in either written or unwritten rules on shows like this. So when it comes to use of modern slang or very, very direct modern references, are there rules for how directly or how obliquely they have to be woven in?
2: For sure. So my goal is basically that I never want to jar anyone out of the emotional reality that Emily is experiencing. The way that slang gets used in or or more contemporary language gets used in the show often is basically to create divides between sometimes between a younger and an older generation, but more specifically, it's between people who are obeying the rules of society and expectation versus those who are sort of flaunting or pushing back against them, right? And it's an incredibly delicate balance that probably more than other shows, like it's all been fed through my voice, you know, like it's, it's like, it's like the writers that, um, that are in my room and, and that write, you know, early drafts of episodes, um, like they hand those over to me and then our writer's room ends. And then I spend months more with the episodes, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm writing multiple drafts of these things. And, um, that is because it is such a specific voice, right? Like I have, you kind of in order to write Dickinson, you have to be like steeped in 19th century history and culture as well as specifically like the the, the Dickinson archive um, and have my kind of like broken internet brain. So there's all these different pieces of that um, that go into it, but fundamentally it is also like one story and one coherent emotional experience that the characters are going through in a a season. So I'm feeling my way through it and finding and finding it but I wouldn't I wouldn't put something in that felt uh to me too much like it was like a a really sharp elbow in the gut that would make you um fall out of the sort of spell that's being woven of this girl in her family getting through the day
1: but does the idea amuse you of sort of Literary scholars a 100 years in the future trying to separate out the different layers of jargon here, trying to figure out which are the pieces that are, you know, 2021, which are the pieces that are 1859 and where they kind of intermingle.
2: Considering that we put a sea shanty in season two, and I thought that was so random and hilarious, and now there's sea shanty TikTok that's trending, I mean, it's getting a little bit crazy. Like, I can't tell the difference anymore. I just think like, we are living in the 1860s, and I, I'm frankly a little bit ready to move on. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's really bizarre, but like this, you know, this is our history, this is our culture, we're in it, we're all in it. It's with us, you know, whether we like it or not. So,
0: so. Well, we always like to end our interviews with the same question: What are you watching and enjoying right now? Ooh,
2: so I have two and a half year old twins, so
0: I uh, don't get to watch or enjoy anything. Um, but I have so, so you're in the thick of Paw Patrol, is what you're saying.
2: Uh, yeah, more like, like the Nutcracker and, um, yeah, a bunch of like Beatrix Potter adaptations. Um, but I'll say that, you know, when we were in our season three writer's room over the summer, I, um, a lot of us were really enjoying the last dance and, um, that strangely came into play in in season three in a way that I won't say more about right now, but that was very good. I really, I really love like all documentary I I, I love I love a good documentary series um and gosh let me think if there was I mean I'm planning to watch uh um promising young woman I I haven't seen it yet but I'm very excited to see it
1: excellent well thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week we appreciate it thank you thank you guys new episodes of Dickinson premiere Fridays on Apple TV (laughs) plus number Number five (laughs)
0: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Busy week, Dan. This week, new launches include Marvel's first show, WandaVision, on Disney+, Servant Season 2 on Apple, Disenchantment Returns on Netflix, the CW kicks off its slate of originals and fall programming with new seasons of Batwoman, All American, Riverdale, Legacies, Nancy Drew, and Rookie Walker. Fox also joins the fall fray with 911 and its spinoff. Plus, you've got the new season of Search Party on HBO Max. Yeah, Dan, it, there's a lot to choose from. Break it down. What there's you got? a
1: lot of TV, and that's not even including a couple of the things that have already. Premiered or launched earlier this week, something like *Night Stalker*: the hunt for a serial killer on Netflix, which, uh, which is already making you shiver and cover your ears.
0: Shudder. No. Uh. Uh-uh.
1: Nope. But it. I, I already lived through it. Nope. It is, of course, the story of the rather horrific reign of terror of the serial killer, rapist, robber, abductor, the Night Stalker in Los Angeles in the mid '80s, and it's. It's an above average version of one of those stories, because the temptation in these long form true crime documentaries is to kind of fixate on the salaciousness of the crimes. You know, there's a reason why we keep getting one hunky Ted Bundy documentary series after another is because for some reason they want to fixate on that. This is a different approach. The central interviews here are with uh, Gil Carillo and... Uh, Frank Salerno, who were the two L.A. homicide detectives who contributed to bringing down Richard Ramirez. And it is it's very procedural. It's about following the clues that ultimately brought him brought got him brought to justice. And so there's some salaciousness because I don't know. I mean, Leslie is on the other end shivering. These these were messed up crimes that violated all of the logic of how people looked at serial killers. And, you know, there's a reason why it's still in the collective consciousness. You look at the most recent season of American Horror Story, and Richard Ramirez was a character in the 80s slasher season. So it is something that is still in people's minds. And this, this is a good telling of that. Um, also, you mentioned yeah,
0: it's uh, yeah, I mean, I I grew up in Los Angeles in the 80s. Obviously, I'm born and raised LA. I love this city. This is my forever home. But I remember when the Night Stalker was the headline every night on the evening news. And as a kid whose bedroom window faced the street I literally went to bed terrified every night. It was scary. I just remember my parents talking about it, my grandparents talking about it, our friends talking about it. Everyone was talking about it at school, like even, at you know, in, in junior high, like this is, it was terrifying. And the idea, I just, I can't even just know I'm going to have like PTSD if I watch another episode, if I watch an episode of that. But yes, to your point, it's, this is a a very well-known
1: Case. And the media coverage is an important part of the story. They have a, lo- a lot of local reporters and local news producers who talk about how they covered it and the role that the media played in publicizing in maybe withholding information to help the police, etc. It's, it's very interesting. Um, speaking of things that have already premiered, you have the fourth season of search party on HBO max. You should all go back to episode 76 from 800 years ago, back in June, when we had the two creators in our showrunner spotlight, the fourth season, I've watched half of it and I really loved the first half of the season. It is it is taking the show into other extreme genres in ways that are very unexpected and very funny. Our colleague, Engu Kang, to mention again uh, in her review, she noted that the first half of the season is much better than the second half of the season. So I'm a little bit wary, but I will definitely finish it this week. I would say this is Aaliyah Shawkat's best work in the series to date. And... This is a show that for whatever reason has been a little too niche to ever get any sort of awards recognition. I would say without any question, her performance is worthy of award nominations. I think she is really kind of spectacular this season. And it's the kind of thing I wish people would, would remember because I know it's an odd show. I know it's definitely not a for everybody show, but I think her performance really is, is way top notch. Uh, the biggest thing this weekend without any question is the premiere of of WandaVision, Um, because it is just such a titanic shift, corporately speaking, for Marvel and for Disney+.
0: And it's the first new Marvel in more than a year. Remember, last year, there was not a single MCU title that was released theatrically.
1: Released theatrically. There was, of course, a final season of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that aired last year. So I promise Which you. Which was
0: not at all part of the MCU. I promise
1: you it existed. It definitely existed. So yeah, for people who don't know or don't remember, uh, WandaVision is following the, the story of Wanda, Scarlet Witch, the character played by Elizabeth Olsen, and Vision, the character played by Paul Bettany. And the conceit of the series is they're existing in a series of 50s, 60s, and 70s sitcoms, and it is not explained in the initial three episodes sent to critics how that comes to be. There are hints of what might be going on, of a conspiracy or paranoid situation afoot, but I'm not going to spoil those for you, and you may be able to gather certain clues from those, but maybe you won't. Um, basically, It's kind of a a sitcom lover's dream. In my review, I said it was more like a sort of meta sitcom than like a superhero show. So I compared it to the Chris Elliott sitcom Get a Life, which some people will remember, but some people will not. I compared it to the Comedy Central George W. Bush sitcom That's My Bush from the South Park guys, which definitely people won't remember. Uh, You could compare it to Lucky Louie, on HBO, sort of these shows that have awareness of the tropes and rhythms of a classic sitcom and try to play off of it. I also compared it to the all-time classic viral sensation Too Many Cooks, uh, and as a result, have gotten many people on my Twitter feed to uh, get that song stuck in their head again, and ha your fault. Um, but anyway, it's it's <laughs> enjoyable. Elizabeth Olsen is is wonderful. I like her when, so much when she gets to be light and funny. I think for whatever reason, everyone always casts her for angstiness. And I think she's really funny. She got to show that some of the time on Sorry for Your Loss, uh, one of those unfortunate doomed Facebook watch shows. Um, when she's funny, she's really charming. Ditto with Paul Bettany, who for years has also had to go in sort of angsty directions. But if you go back to earlier roles like, I don't know, Wimbledon or Knight's Tale, he's a funny guy. And here he is incredibly funny um and so yeah i mostly enjoyed it on the sort of geeky tv fan level now i know that there is a proviso that we like to give about how you are not in fact a critic uh but i believe drink but i believe you have also seen the first three episodes of this show what do you think leslie
0: yeah, again, just to reiterate what Dan said, I am not a critic, so take this advice with what you will. I am also not a super fan, bad pun intended, of a lot of the Marvel features because I'm not a big comic book fan. Um, but I loved WandaVision. It, to me, it felt like, as you said, it, it was a great send up of classic sitcoms. This isn't knee deep in in Marvel mythology. Like, I don't need to turn around and ask my wife, what's a Ragnarok? You know, like this is which is a running gag in our family. But um, it's, you know, I, I really love the show. The tone is is fantastic. There are definite hints that there is something larger going on. You know, I I heard my wife talking with another friend uh, and colleague and friend of the five um, about the show, and they were having the big, diehard, super nerdy Marvel conversation about it. And I'm sitting here listening to that, and I'm like, I watched the same show that you guys did, and I didn't get any of that stuff from it. So Marvel fans, I think, will clearly love it. And I think it also, more importantly, appeals to people who are not necessarily lovers of Comic Book Fair. So this to me feels like a big, broad hit that can be family viewing. That can be for the super fan fanboy audience. It's it, it hits the perfect cross section and. Um, As a fun little treat, guess who our guest is next week on the show, Dan? I don't
1: need to guess. I work on this podcast, Leslie. Who's our guest next week?
0: It's WandaVision head writer Jack Schaefer, who will join us to talk about the first three episodes of WandaVision. So stay tuned for that coming next week.
1: And just as a last kind of pseudo review within this Critics Corner, I, I did watch the pilot of the CW's Walker, which is... Kind of a remake or reboot of Walker, Texas Ranger, but really, really, really and truly is in no way a reboot of Walker, Texas Ranger. Basically, the way I could best describe it is Mark Pedowitz loves Jensen Eccles and Jared Padalecki, and I suspect he walked into an office and said, what can you give me that will allow me to work and live in Austin and to wear a gigantic hat? And this was the thing that they were able to come up with it has well he already lived it no that's what i mean so I'm, this was I'm saying that he able, yeah able to shoot in his backyard i'm saying yeah. he's i'm saying he walked in and said i don't want i want to i want to do a show but i don't want to leave my home what can you give me to do and so that's this is what they did it doesn't feel anything like walker texas ranger in any way the action is really not memorable it is really mostly about a father Dealing with an estranged relationship with his teenage kids, and occasionally he goes out and solves a crime, maybe or something. Uh, so it's gonna be about expectations. I think there are a lot of people in this show that CW fans love, and I think they will be happy to see them wearing big hats. So many hats, lots of hats. Uh, it is set in Austin, and it's, it's, it feels very Texasy, and that's nice. So it will come down to expectations, I think. I don't think it's bad, but I do think it's a bad action drama. So if you're going into this thinking, man, is there going to be kick-ass martial arts? Is it going to be a intriguing plot of the week? It might not be. But if it's going to be, is it going to be an interesting family drama in Austin? Sure, that it absolutely is. So...
0: Yeah. Walker. What, you know, when I interviewed Pedowitz about his new about the fall slate and tonally what he's looking to do in terms of pilots and development, he did stress that Walker and even the new season of Batwoman and Kung Fu, which is uh, for later this year, that they're effectively family shows at this point. And you know, hearing your review, Dan, it it kind of tracks
1: if if they don't get more action successfully into their version of Kung Fu, I think there will be a genuine problem. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, look, if Chuck Norris fans are going to tune into this, they are not going to be happy. This is not going to do what they want it to do. But if Jared Padalecki fans tune into this, I think they may get what they want, which is Jared Padalecki being emotional. It's not you know, funny, supernatural, quippy chemistry with uh, Jensen Eccles, Jared Padalecki. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a different thing for him. And it's a reminder that he he has grown up before our very eyes since the glory days of Gilmore Girls. And so this is him playing a a mature adult with teenage kids. And so it is what it is.
0: Yes, a face of the network for sure. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast.
1: As always, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those things really do move us up, search engines and all of that. And we appreciate the heck out of all of that. We are always on Twitter and you can come say hi to us. You can let us know what we got right, what we got wrong. And if you have questions for us, well, one of these days it will be time for a mailbag segment, and we could always use more good queries for the both of us. You can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
0: Until next week, Dan. Stay safe, everybody.